Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the acquittal of four journalists at The Sun. Critics say the trial was a waste of public time and money and they shouldn't have been charged in the first place. Were they right? Naming those arrested for sex offences. A parliamentary committee says the media should be banned from naming suspects until they're charged. Is it time to change the rules? And never again the Sun what won it? Andrew Neil says he doesn't even read the paper anymore, despite his job making him read everything politically important. Has the paper lost its clout? And joining us as usual are two of the media's best and brightest. Asa Bennett is assistant comment editor at The Telegraph, and Kamutha Ramanathan is a presenter and business correspondent at World Finance. Media Focus. So first up, the so-called Sun 4 have been cleared of all charges relating to paying a Ministry of Defence official for stories. The trial was seen as an important test case for a practice which Fleet Street widely considered normal and even necessary. The judge said the journalists were clearly uncovering stories that were in the public interest. Asa, do you think that they should have been tried in the first place? I think it was basically a waste of time and money just from trigger-happy prosecutors who just wanted to... uh spend, what is it, three years just making these journalists' lives an absolute misery. When you find that other cases recently, we found sort of uh, the whole Plebgate scandal where the Andrew Mitchell may or may not have said a rude word to a policeman. That took, you know, with the whole faff, we're still talking about it three years later. It's, it's just bonkers. But playing devil's advocate for a second, clearly there, there is a public interest here that you can't have journalists just buying access to very, very confidential and very, very privileged information. Surely the state should step in when it goes too far. Oh, of course, and that obviously remains illegal and it would be wrong to pay public officials for information like that unless there is a substantial public interest in which, in this case, which was proven to be uh, with, one, I think, believe it was the chief reporter, having found numerous stories of, uh, sort of failing equipment in the armed forces and lots of for, you know, wrongdoing for for the troops, and that in itself proves that the prosecutors were just uh, trying to get any case they can, see what publicity they can make of it. They almost were a bit wrong-footed. Obviously, historically, the Guardian, you know, the story goes, you know, they were first with all these stories of phone hacking and uh, all these nerd-wells at News International <laughs> News UK, and then the police were sitting there going, nope, we're not going to investigate, not, we're going to do nothing, Gov. And then so suddenly the CPS is, uh, is just thinking, OK, let's try and compensate for this. And it, it's just shameful, really. Martha, you trained as a journalist in your native Canada. How do you find the legal climate here in the UK? Is it slightly scary as a journalist? Do you feel um, that you have to be more careful given these judgments? I think we should consider what's happened with sort of a more nuanced glance at journalism, how it operates, as you said, across the seas, but also in the various media, right? So checkbook journalism, which is sort of what this has been called, a case of journalists leveraging for financial gain, in my opinion, should be seen as part of a wider issue where journalists, their relationship with the people that they are engaging with as a source, as a potential tip-off, are going to be leveraging their own interests, right? Whether that be, I'm going to give you X, Y, Z amount of funds towards this greater project and towards getting the story out, or perhaps notoriety, or, you know, bearing all of that just aligning yourself with a particular political publication. So there are a wide range of issues. What is most important, in my opinion, is that this is not something that happens on a daily basis. There are exceptions to every rule. I'm not saying that you should be allowed to willy-nilly just transfer funds for any given source. There are checks and balances, and any savvy journalist is going to ensure that first the source who could potentially be profiting in a financial way 
is going to be a legitimate source, and they're going to have to do that background work to determine that. So, so there are a lot of these other considerations that have to be taken. I think there's mm. never this sort of black and white sweeping mm. generalization or, you know, that can never be made in these cases. But when you look at the Leveson inquiry, we, we've heard tales of journalists just giving five grand in cash to people who work in the royal household just to buy the, the, the phone book of the private mobile phones of the royal family. Uh, th- that can't be in the public interest, surely. Fair enough. And that's why I said, you know, sweeping generalizations across the board should never be made in these cases. There are isolated cases where I think that it is deserving to use these sort of funds. But, you know, the tawdry nature of where some of these stories lie is an issue. And having the judicial court system intervene and interpret the law is something that any journalist is going to have to accept as a certain eventuality. If they can hold up their end of the bargain, then they shouldn't be afraid to perhaps have people examine what they've done in the process. But I also think that editors as well as managers at news entities have a responsibility to protect their journalists as well. And as we hear, as you said, with these inquiries, That's not always the case. And, you know, that is sort of a sad byproduct of the day that we live in. As much as companies want to be the first ones to get a story, whether that be in North America, whether that be over here in Europe, at times judgment is at times not always leading to the best decisions. So do you take Kamada's point there that sometimes uh, the proof of pudding is in the eating? So for example the Telegraph very famously bought the DVD with all the scan of the MPs parliamentary expenses. Yes, which and I was cre- about to plug that yeah. mercilessly here. Uh, and, and then, and, and, so, so it's the results that count isn't it not the methods? Definitely, it was the motivation behind it because of course a journalist by, by almost definition and the raison d'etre of our trade is to find stories out, find things that other people don't want to read and of course uh, if some people then you know, good public-minded servants and officials need, you know, need a fiver or whatever it is. Yeah, it's case a case of £110,000, yes, I, I know, uh, to, you know, lo- loosen that and secure that, then obviously it's for the greater good. And obviously the expenses saga would, uh, you know, prove that. Frankly, the parliamentary authorities would never have released the, the, the actual detail of the expenses, the actual invoice-by-invoice stuff, which revealed the fraud on a massive scale by many, many MPs. But, you know, how does it work then? Because the minute you accept checkbook journalism is allowed, then you're into this horrible, messy thing which is placing huge pressure on journalists at the time to decide whether they think it's in the public interest. Clearly, months Mm. later, it'll either be a stinker or it'll be the best thing that's ever happened, but you don't know at the point of purchase, do you? And also, how do you even decide how much those invoices are worth? Why 110 grand? Why not 50 quid and a pickled egg? Well, of course, there are these sort of checks and balances and that normally now in in these companies, there'll be your editor who can sign it off and obviously the finance department will start querying where where the hell is all all these receipts going, if you're just spending money willy-nilly. Um, but at the same time, you just have to look at where, what the point is. You know, obviously, you know, for a journalist, if you're coming back with just spending loads of money with no interesting stories, then you're not going to be in the job for too long. Come on, sir. I mean, you were active in your native Canada. How do you find uh, the regime here for journalists different? You've got a unique perspective on this, because I've always lived here. This is what I've always known. But you, you must have, uh, have had a few observations when you started working here. I think the partisan nature imbuing a lot of the stories comes across more so than perhaps I'm used to back home. And 
to the British listeners, that might in some ways be a little offensive. But the truth is, I think there's a little more transparency in the way the 24-hour news cycle happens back home. You know when you're sitting down and listening to MSNBC, CNN, what type of perspective you're going for. But that also speaks to the types of audiences that exist there. Here, I think that perhaps the story is a little murkier. The intentions are a little murkier, and that really will change, you know, how stories are crafted, how opinions are formed, and how news ultimately is is delivered to the public. We have quite an odd situation here, which is a role reversal of our transatlantic media, which is that our television is incredibly neutral and our papers are quite biased and lively, whereas, of course, across the Atlantic, it's the opposite. The television is, I would say, insane, Fox News and so on, and the papers are incredibly restrained and balanced. Was that something that struck you as a change? Absolutely, it did. But when I look to external sources to shed light on a story that I'm thinking about pursuing, I very much turn to editorial-driven arguments, not because I see myself in what the person is arguing, but because, to me, it taps into a certain consciousness. And I think that British papers do that well here, but I think what I've seen back home in many ways with the New York Times and the way they've built their establishment around the editorial columns is something that should be, you know, set as a standard and is very much spreading across the globe. Elisa, do you think there's something to be said, though, in terms of employers being more willing to give up their sources nowadays? So you've got, for example, very famously Vicky Price. On this particular story, of course, News International actually told the CPS who the, the, the lady who was sentenced to a year was, they revealed their source. I mean, hmm. in a sense, it wasn't even the police that, that, were, that, that did some detective work. They were given up by their own employers. But at the same time, there's a, the, the police do like to try and find out who the journalist's sources are with the um, whole Reaper shenanigans going on and uh, so that I, I would argue, I would very much defend the journalists right to keep their sources safe I mean that's a different thing although I was just sort of thinking on, on this subject um, I just thought I'd sort of chuck in uh, for context on the uh, the Sun 4 that it, it, the CPS have had a bit of an astonishing uh, failure rate with the attempted prosecutions in that um, obviously about a further nine journalists have been found not guilty after standing uh, on this charge a further seven have faced retrials you know and then only about three have actually been successfully mm -hmm. convicted and charged so it, it's you find that there's a bit of a hysteria going on in this kind of post Levison environment could I just add, the MOD strategists at the centre of you know, the investigation we're currently examining has had to accept guilt in this situation. I think that says a lot, considering that she has had to take a stand on this situation before what's happened to said journalists was even declared by the court system. I think the sequence of events there, for me, shows that the CPS in this case perhaps really has to reconsider whether they handled this situation uh, fairly. And so what do you think in terms of, quite apart from who's been acquitted and who's been found guilty, what do you think this message that sends out to you as a journalist, as it were? Are you, are you chilled by the, the, the CPS's reaction, or do you think that they're going to be suitably chastened by this, this litany of failure that you've said, and you feel, therefore, a bit more emboldened? Or do you think, actually, I don't want to go to prison, like we, none of us do, I therefore won't, you know, won't drill down into the depths of this story just in case? Well, well obviously, I'm not taking this as some licence to go and, you know, commit crime wantonly <laughs> sort of thing. It's not that, that sort of of charter in that, that sort of uh, way. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's frightening. 
in a sense that they're in this environment when they're just you know, looking for anything to jump on. You know, I mean, obviously, thank gosh, I, from my perspective, working on the comment desk would just be you know, opining and uh, sort of yeah, analysing and getting other people mm. to do the writing. I'm not having to do any sort of investigative journalism, so I'm not having to be at risk as such in this. But even then, on the for the for the industry, I'd say it's still very very chilling. Kamotha, uh, do you feel chilled if I can put it like that? I've had to deal with these situations where I've had sources both go on the record and off the record with information, and they've asked me, what are the consequences? I think the best way to deal with the situation is just, frankly, honesty. You can say it will be protected, but a lot of this has to also do with the collaboration with editorial staff, right, and an understanding from the top down if the sources will be protected, ultimately, if this case is even worth pursuing at the end of the day. So all of those questions have to be taken into consideration. A person understands going into any of these situations and providing information that could ruffle a few feathers. There is inherent risk involved, but you can't make promises. It's a very uneasy situation. I think the hardest thing for me as a journalist is to see that employers in these cases, as we talked about, you know, the case of Vicky Price, we're not there ultimately, you know, as much as the legal system is there to interpret law, I think employers have a responsibility because journalists at the end of the day are overzealous to say the least and are going to be driven to please everyone and are frankly to get ahead and to get on top of a story. For my sins, I used to be a local councillor in my former hometown of York, and when I was elected, I gave a, a small amount of confidential information to the local journalist, as you might do. Uh, nothing in, in breach of the law, I might add. But uh, I remember asking the journalist, I said, what, um, you know, what would you do if you were arrested? Would you, would you want to be prosecuted? Would you reveal the source? And he said, oh, no, I'd love to be arrested and prosecuted and go, even go to prison. It would be the best, ca- best career move I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was quite useful. But yeah, it would be in public interest. It's almost absolutely. a vindication. Yes. But it unfortunately was only about local council matters, nothing of any uh, particular consequence. So next, the Parliamentary Home Affairs Committee's latest report recommends that sex crime suspects should not be named at arrest, but only named at the point that they are charged. This would mean the media could not so far have covered high-profile celebrity arrestees like Sir Cliff Richard and many others under Operation Utree. MP Keith Vaz explained that a change to the rules was needed because the rise of social media had amplified the reputational damage done by naming a suspect. Kamutha, it's clearly good for a celebrity, but could this prevent other alleged victims coming forward? And how do we strike a fair balance? Naming and shaming. That's essentially what we're talking about today, right? You should edit this programme, actually. That would have been a short (laughs) introduction. (laughs) You know, naming and shaming, it happens. It should happen. As a former breaking news reporter, I know I I keep referring back to my stripes as, uh, you know, all candy floss and lip gloss and all those things that everyone hates about American news. But that's really what we did. We named and we shamed on a daily basis. Why that is important is because I firmly believe you're providing a public service in ensuring that people who may also be victims of this individual are able to come forward with their story. I know this... uh, fly on the wall sort of phenomenon was one that many people are concerned about because the issue being that, you know, if you drag out these court cases, there will never be an end to it. But we live in a day and age where anyone can reinvent themselves. We've seen people do it all of the time. And whether you be, you know, your average person who may not have 
a celebrity persona, or you'd be someone who already had a personality that you know drove them into public life. You can turn it around. But I think more importantly, if you think about the victims in the cases where there is legitimate grievance, and it is later proven that an issue was needed to be raised for the public's interest, I think ultimately that is really what should drive our decision-making. I agree with you, and I genuinely do. The problem is, if I could play devil's advocate, of course, is that it's such a terrible price to pay. You look at the Sun 4, for example, they're on bail for three years. If you're accused of a sex offence for three years, your life is effectively over. No one is going to employ a potential paedophile or a potential rapist. I think what Keith Vaz's committee was trying to do was just strike a balance to say, look, if someone's going to be charged, then clearly that's enough evidence. But if at the point of arrest, it should be kept secret. I think for the exploratory purposes of the police force, it is still something that should happen earlier in the process, in my opinion. I do agree. It creates these isolated cases where individuals are racking up bills, exorbitant amounts that the average person cannot absorb easily. But that being said, I still think the public's interest is really going to trump all of that. So I do think in the, you know, in an effort to promote the smooth delivery of any investigation, there should be more transparency in who is being examined. I mean, so a lot of victims of sex crimes are, are manipulated by the perpetrator to believing that they're the only one and that no one would believe them. But when they can see at the point of arrest that lots of other people have come forward, that that can embolden them. Would you say that's a fair point? Indeed, it's def- definitely a fair point. There's very fine, fine debate. And um, on a slightly nostalgic point, I mean, when it comes now, I get a sense of deja vu, because earlier on in the coalition, there was, a, I think in 2010, uh, suddenly the ministers slightly weirded out people by pushing exactly exactly this, uh, trying to get this past MPs. And I think it got shouted down at the time with lots of, you know, hang on, you're wanting to, you know, protect male rapists, you know, and all these you know, men just running off scot-free and, you know, not getting the light of, of public scrutiny and uh, helping these people come th- forward. Uh, at the same time, indeed, it's a balance between having these people whose lives get ruined and then obviously having people come forward and the whole process moving a bit quicker. And of those people who've you know, had their lives uh, definitely taken through the ringer, we've got two Tory MPs recently, Mark Pritchard, Nigel Evans. I mean, obviously, if you want to be very cynical, you could say, hang on, why are MPs suddenly coming back to this sort of thing again? Oh, of course, because some of their colleagues have had you know, personal experience of this. You might think that, you might very well think that, but I couldn't possibly Indeed, comment. Indeed, I'm just putting it out there <laughs> as an argument you, one could put. But at the same time, I would say that when you look at the figures, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service would say that there are actually very few sort of wrongfully put uh, accusations of, you know, the, of, of rape and such serious offences. And at the same time, it's important to have that uh, impetus there for other people to come forward because uh, the, the other estimations from the Metropolitan Police are, I think it's something like only one in five actual rapes committed are reported. Mm. That's shocking. But again, just to play devil's advocate, as I say, I actually agree with you, but, uh, you know, we work, uh, my personal PR practice involves uh, reputation management, and, you know, we do have people approach us that say, I was arrested for a certain crime and um, was exonerated, my arrest and trial is on page one of Google, and my subsequent clearing is on page five. You know, there, there is a huge personal cost to bear here, isn't there, for those that have been falsely accused? Of course, but obviously th- th- that very rarely happens when it does, and obviously that is tragic when it does, but um, at the same time, 
you know, normally it seems to the loudest people who are complaining about this are those who are wealthy, the sort of Max Mosley, as it were. Now he's had to scrub Google of all this sort of hanky-panky, the news of the world caught him out over. So... I mean, I, I have a sort of limited sympathy. Obviously, I have sympathy, but it's certainly... They, they are able to remedy this. And I think what we should add is that a digital footprint, as you said, is can be reinvented, right? We can all reinvent ourselves. And what matters is that, you know, your comeback story. You want to be a comeback kid? Well, you tell a great story. And it's a narrative that can be woven through... PR services such as yours. But, Kamutha, do you think that there is a duty for the media to give equal prominence to any subsequent acquittal or exoneration of someone accused of a crime? Because at the moment, an arrest can be quite newsworthy and can be a splash, but if they're acquitted two weeks later and, you know, someone has died, it could be possible that their acquittal is buried on page eight as a nib. That can't be right. Well, journalists search for the same facts as you're discussing right now, whether it be a financial regulatory authority, I won't name any specific ones, that perhaps have begun an investigation and there was no end to it for whatever said political motivation. Let's just not go into the details there. (laughs) But what matters is that there needs to be an end. Those charges that were laid against someone should be explained as to why that case has been closed, as you said. So those are tools and measures that perhaps, uh, you know, someone looking to find closure in their own life can bring forward and push the intermediaries to bring about themselves. So both of you are quite resolute on this. Come with it. Uh, finally, is your view then if it ain't broke, don't fix it, that the situation is as it is, if you're arrested, it should be a matter of the public record, and if you're acquitted, then, like you say, you have the right to uh, a prominent rebuttal and, and the right to reinvent yourself online? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that at the end of the day, the experience of a victim who perhaps doesn't realize that the situation that rocked them for the course of a few months, a few weeks, one day, is going to define them, is surmounts, in my mind, every other argument. I completely agree in that sense. Obviously, um, for any wrongful accusation, there is, in that same way, the rightful way of uh, you know, correcting it and cleaning yourself up. And obviously that's what you know PR services are for, almost. Do you think that the media do have a duty to handle... Uh, sex offences in an in an extra sensitive way, in insofar as uh, different from yes. any other crime. I, I mean, obviously, Twitter is, is what sticks in the mind here. And that um, there's the infamous botched you know, news night, yes. Lord McAlpine uh, sort of thing that saw all of Twitter suddenly start naming Tory ministers and uh, senior Tories ad, ad nauseam. And then you find there's only responsibility. Um, obviously, in that case, the lesson there was don't start flagging up who you're going to name if you just want to encourage irresponsible public activity. So definitely the media would behave responsibly, and obviously it's what we've learned recently. The problem is, though, isn't it, Kamutha, is is, uh, social media, because you you often see police officers that say when someone's arrested or someone's not going to be named, please don't look online to, to find out who it might be in terms of the victim. But so many people on social media do speculate wildly, and sometimes accurately, in terms of naming the victim in clear breach of the law, do you think the media do have to allow for that in some way, in terms of, like, jigsaw identification or allowing the fact that... I mean, the male, for example, they often say, you know, this celebrity footballer who we can't name is being named, you know, prevalently on social media, and then that's just inviting their readers to search for Twitter for, you know, football affair, isn't it? Well, I think there's a spectrum in the way that news agencies produce and present information 
I personally wouldn't subscribe to the belief where you should sort of tease people to head to, you know, this website that rhymes with Twitter, you know, <laughs> where you can find information on page so-and-so. You know, it's, it's a little ludicrous, to tell you the truth. I think that we've seen a lot of prominent politicians who continue to have careers post-scandal. So what that tells me is that you can continue to operate, you can provide information to the public within the legal realms and still be able to provide a good public service. But at the same time, we're all naturally curious creatures and um, obviously love a good gossip, love a, you know, almost verging on a conspiracy theory. I mean, the thing that's disturbing with the internet is if you say, look up any celebrity and type in, you know, celebrity name, paedophile, there'll be some forum somewhere where they go, oh, I've got proof, you know, oh, here's some witnesses, you know. It's horrifying in that sense. And um, so obviously... You know, with the jigsaw identification, you fi- you found it happened for things like you know Chad Evans' victim, uh, that footballer, and uh, you know all sorts of people. But then at the same time, the media. I'm just thinking when you were saying the whole teasing. You know, we'd love to identify this man, but you know, check on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was the infamous case of uh, the man who rhymes with you know Brian Miggs or whatever. You know, and we're doing a lot of rhyming in this I podcast. Know, <laughs> it's like it. Rhyming slang, none of it rude. And but that was just because at that point, all these celebrities taking out super injunctions just for you know dropping their pants and getting caught out. That, that was just taking the mickey. So obviously someone had to try and take a stand there. And so obviously these super injunctions that you can have to you know gag the press and get away with whatever you're up to, you know, then we can actually get some progress on having them for good, decent, you know, reasons. And so finally, the paper that once boasted in 1992 that it was The Sun What Won It has been lambasted recently for its lack of influence. In spite of The Sun launching Sun Nation, a new standalone general election website, Andrew Neil said that he doesn't even read the paper anymore, even though it's his job to read anything that's politically important. Asa, do you read The Sun and do you think it's lost its political clout? I do, and it's this, and it's got this very cute uh, spin-off website that's imitating this uh, young Nation. person's thing, the BuzzFeed, uh, that is the called Buzzfeed. Sun Nation. <laughs> yeah. And um, obviously it's trying to diversify and be hip and happening with the kids. And um, uh, the thing is, of course, recent history would say, 92, yeah, indeed, Sun, what won it, it was very good. And Kelvin McKenzie, lovely man that he is, likes to go around telling this mythical anecdote of, what was it, after Britain... Uh, dropped out of the exchange rate mechanism. Uh, he he had, had a call with John Major and he had to say, you know, Prime Minister, I'm going to dump a bucket of excrement over you tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. I don't know. think he used the word excrement. But I know. Uh, I yeah. thought I'd clean it up. You know, fa- family podcast. Yeah. This. And um, at the same time, then John had to go like, oh, oh no, Kelvin, oh, no. And uh, it was actually quite a good impression. I'm trying. It was my impression of Kelvin's impression of John Major. Um and that's always held up as a kind of mythic, you know, mobster style, you know, how editors get to behave with prime ministers. Meanwhile, 2010, you have David Cameron slapped on the front page of The Sun with a sort of Obama-esque hope style, uh, you know, we endorse this man. And yet he can't even secure, you know, majority government. So it shows you the dwindling influence of papers. They don't just have it in the bag anymore. It's, uh, you know, much more of a kind of, But they definitely can help a sort of narrative of building up a winner rather than a loser. Well, they're clearly extremely hard on Ed Miliband, uh, to say the least. I mean, the Telegraph's coverage might have a slight bias one way or the other, but at least it's reasonable, I would say, whereas The Sun says Ed Miliband is a waste of time and David Cameron's the future. That, that to me, is slightly more biased. Well, you know what you get. And obviously, you find some people, uh, if you look at the 
who reads these papers. There's some interesting oddities in that there are some Tory voters who read the Daily Mirror, even though every day it's a diet of millionaire David Cameron wants to tax your your children and all these sort of things. And uh, it's it's an odd world, media, in that way. But at the same, obviously, it, it knows it's making it all very jazzy. I mean, did you see the budget coverage it had? It was a front, a front page of George Osborne, sort of transvestite chancellor, uh, doing the epic strut, saying <laughs> so money super so money cash supermarket I, I've forgotten the reference at the same time there's also the Kim Kardashian comparison they did where mm. they, they called him sort of Kim Hardcashian do you think, though, that they reflect the interests of their readers, that no-one's interested in the minutiae of the budget, but they are interested in the fact that his trousers were half-masked when he delivered the um, the budget and he has a new haircut? I mean, is, is it should we be grateful that the Sun's readers are actually discussing what the Chancellor's up to? Uh, well, yes, they, they serve up uh, news that, on the face of it, would be quite boring, uh, you know, and make it interesting. And if you look at the readership figures, obviously The Guardian, fewer, way, way fewer people actually read The Guardian than would read The Sun or The Daily Mail because they know how to really get some punch, get it across. You find that kind of extrapolated online with all these, you know, websites with their attention-grabbing headlines, really getting people clicking. And, you know, we were having to catch up and realise how people you know, will want to read these things more. Come on, when you first came to London and started reading our daily newspapers, did you think you were on another planet? <laughs> the headlines definitely... Uh had me sort of shaking sometimes. I, I was afraid to... With disbelief or anger or what? <laughs> <laughs> With what? Jealousy. Shock at that, that whole stiff upper lip connotation. I don't know if that necessarily applies. I mean, there's emotion dripping off of every page and what I would read sometimes in some of the, you know, the prominent dailies. I think what matters is if if you look at even some of the most prominent global media entities... I I look to, for instance, the Huffington Post. Perhaps it's not everyone's flavour when it comes to consuming news. Their business coverage has gone down recently. I, I think the quality... Mm, of, I don't know if you know of anyone who's left the Huffington I Post. I know, I know. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I feel I have to declare an interest. I used to work for the Huffington Post in okay. the UK. But what I want to point out is the way the Huffington Post has created this to me, an impressive metric system in terms of determining what people are reading and driving news based around the taste of their viewers, which I think is a very reactive process that perhaps some of our oldest, most established papers could learn a a thing or two from, right? I think the other thing that Huffington Post does well is in terms of providing editorials editorials that really shove down your throat someone's opinion in a way that perhaps a little more of a refined brand doesn't deliver on. And ultimately, I think people like to see a little bit more color in what they're reading, because whether you're if you're consuming your news online, which is the wide majority of people around the world, you could turn to an established newspaper or you could turn to a blogger site. I mean, there's real competition that's going on. And so you have to have zingy headlines that are really going to give people a taste of what they want and deliver it right away. I mean, also, at the risk of you praising your former employer, as it were, Huffington Post seemed to balance light and shade quite well in a way that, say, Jeremy Vinder's on Radio 2 or Nicky Campbell on 5 Live or Ian Collins on LBC, for example. Indeed, Ian Collins, very good show. You know, light and light and shade. It's uh, what you need with media. It's um, instead, with the Huffington Post, 
I would agree. It, it's almost it takes the best traditions of tabloid media with the kind of you know attention grabbing uh, sort of headline to hook you in and get you reading. At the same time, having serious players. I mean, last week, if I can plug them, they were interviewing um, President Obama, I believe, on all sorts of subjects like Israel and uh, you know all this of geopolitics. And, uh, sorry to interrupt. I just want to say, why did he choose that platform? That's more telling about the power and potency of Huffington Post versus another established news agency. Because hmm. it gets a, an alternative uh, you know, channel communicating with voters and a different audience. At the same time, I think he sat down before that with uh, this other website, Vice. And obviously mm-hmm. in the UK, we had the BuzzFeed talking to um, David Cameron. I'm just, it, it's, what he, it's what he infamously called it, yeah. uh, David Cameron. Yeah. I, just, I just like to shamelessly copy that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, he was interviewed by them. And I think they got about let's say 10,000 views of this sort of live chat with the PM. Uh, whereas a lovely picture of an owl they posted on, on the internet that day got about you know, 100,000 views. So it's that kind of awkward topic. You have to make these things jazzy. Otherwise they just look at owls and sloths all day. Do you think then, Kamutha, that not just the sun, but that's particularly unique in terms of, is it just a symptom of a dying trade generally in terms of papers with like naked, bare-breasted women on page three and over-the-top headlines? Do you think that's dying, as it were, long-term? I would say that... You know, so the tawdry nature of that sort of appeal worked at a time. I think that people can pull up images of that nature anywhere, really, on their phones. Kids can pick it up wherever they want. So it doesn't have the same sort of currency it had in the past. And as a result, lead people to read other more, perhaps more academic pieces. I think that if we look at the way news is configured today... Everybody is chasing that opinionated pull. I think that even the largest entities, the Financial Times, which I, uh, you know, will absorb on a daily basis in the course of my job, right? My most memorable takeaways are always from particular journalists. I'm looking to identify with an individual. I don't know them, but I'm thinking about them and what they would have to say about this story. So it's really about bringing the viewers down to the personal level. I mean, Asa, do you think that Tom Newton Dunn, the political editor there at The Sun, do you think he's actually doing, within the context, an incredibly good job? Because it must be quite difficult to, you know, not necessarily dumb down, but articulate clearly in a way that, that that's going to matter, to, you know, rank-and-file, quote-unquote, normal people. The man on the Clapham omnibus, is it? Absolutely. I mean, it is said that The Sun is one of the hardest newspapers to actually work at and write successfully in that sort of style, because you have to... Sort of harness and encompass such you know complicated stories and make it you know a short headline, short story without just prattling on or leaving any you know extraneous details out. You want to make sure it's just what they need. And so at the same time, Tom Newton done the team would be able to you know make make politics interesting in that way. Um, but obviously, when you look at you know online media and all this competition that arises uh, with all these voices, and as we we're talking about earlier, you know Obama and all these uh, young people websites. When the a politician, feed, like indeed, that. indeed, <laughs> uh, when a young when a politician wants to place a column, they'll do you know, a nice establishment title like the Daily Telegraph or the Sun, and everyone would think, very good, well done, you, George Osborne, you're a jolly good chap, and all the rest of it. But obviously, if they want something more unconventional, then they go elsewhere. And obviously, every outlet has their own style. 
style and, and obviously has their own baggage with it. And that's simply just uh, what happens with an increasingly uh, more larger marketplace. But you're a fellow young person. Just give me an example of what kind of media you take on a daily basis. So I, I bizarrely, I do read The Sun on the morning. I subscribe to it because I, uh, you know, often try to place clients in it. But I read the mm. FT. I cheekily read the mail online on the way back uh, on the train and the evening standard. But that, that's what I read daily. In terms of every other uh, journal, it would be dependent on the day, really. Well, of course. I mean, but I'd say I have a, I'm slightly out of the ordinary, and that part of my job is to read the papers, because uh, I, I sort of end up writing this uh, morning political briefing for The Telegraph, where subscribe in your inboxes, subscribe, and, have, uh, and all the rest of it, um, where I aim to normally read a good cross-section. Obviously, it's good to show off you know, the marvellous reporting we've got in the paper that morning, but uh, obviously I aim to try and look at, you know, a bit of, sort of left and right in that sense, you know, what the sun might have, what, you know, if the Daily Mirror has anything interesting, or sort of at the same time if, you know, if, if the website's Huffington and the BuzzFeeds have their, mm. you know, things too. Uh, whether you find, as a result, I get all the sort of broad reach of stories ranging from, you know, the Prime Minister making a speech to uh, some Labour front bencher talking about don't smoke weed, that sort of thing. Because you have to look at the panoply of all that kind of stuff. Do you think, well, that minister's bound to go by this afternoon or this, this story's not going to run? You, you must get an, a feel having seen the whole landscape. Well, you know the lie of the land and that what the big story will be, but, you know, who's going to resign by the end of the day. Afsal Amin, the Dudley North Tory candidate who'd been done over by the mail on Sunday the previous week. The former candidate and now. Indeed. And so by the time I'd written you know, that Monday's briefing saying, oh, you know, he's facing pressure and oh, you know, he might have to resign, he had resigned that, that afternoon. He didn't last very long. So these things move frighteningly quickly. And come on, though, do you think that the speed of how the media landscape moves uh, is an issue now? Because, um, you know, Sky, uh, the, the running news channels want to get the story so quickly and they want to move it forward. Tony Blair, when he stood down as Prime Minister, once famously called the, uh, the press feral beasts. Do you, think, uh, do you think he had a point? Absolutely. I think there is an appetite for that, but I also think that there is a balance and I think that, you know, what he said, perhaps he was a victim of that, you know, quick turnaround machine and saw himself vilified more times than perhaps he would have liked to. He encouraged to. it too, though. Of course he did. Everyone takes advantage of it. But what I think is important to note is that as much as people want information given to them at a rapid fire pace, there still is room for thoughtful, long sort of analytical pieces. And that's really what's going to drive a conversation forward more than sort of this, uh, you know, Fox News quick fire style. It's a final question then. Is, do you think that's what papers are going to uh, move into? Slightly slower journalism, that if you want uh, the, the latest up to the minute, you go to the BBC News website, you go to the BuzzFeed or whatever, but if you're looking for an analytical piece, then you're going to pick up a copy of The Telegraph just to just to get a little bit of perspective on the news. Definitely. I'd say that readers do have an eye for quality, insight, rather than just quick hits of, you know, lol, funny picture, lol, look at that cat and all the rest of it. You know, so therefore there is still that room. It's not just a... We're not seeing the death of the sort of... You know, the dusty titles like the FT, the Telegraph, and all the rest of it. Far from it. Instead, there is that room, and they're moving into it. It's just you have to, you know, change of the times. Do you think there is a role for peppers as curators of content? Because one of the problems is when you go on the BuzzFeed, is it asks you what you like and what you don't. So if you don't like sport, for example, you never ever have to know sport uh, issue ever again. But you could also click, I don't want to hear anything about politics, and then you could sanitize your entire newsfeed and never know anything about politics. At least with when you pick up a paper, someone saying, no, this warrants a, a page lead on page five, it's a political story, read it. 
Mm, absolutely. Obviously, there's a responsibility that the papers do have because they're able to you know, show off the big stories. Whereas, you know, with Twitter and uh, and obviously the social media websites, these online uh, websites, you find that it's a self-fulfilling thing. You read what you want to read. So it's good that they're able to you know, show off uh, you know, investigations, probes and these things that they have money to throw at and really make something uh, exciting from it. Well, guys, I think we've run out of metaphorical tape, so we're going to have to leave it there. So, Kamutha, how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, what website? How do people engage with you work? As mentioned earlier in the broadcast, thank you for that. I'm a business correspondent with World Finance. My videos most prominently would appear on that site. That's worldfinance.com. If you'd like to engage with me directly, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Kumutharam, K-U-M-U-T-H-A-R-A-M. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for coming on. Asa? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, my handle is Asa Ben, which is A-S-A-B-E-N-N. It's incredibly easy to follow. And how do people sign up to this daily uh, email that you write? Well, uh, if you uh, Google something like Telegraph Politics Morning Briefing, there'll be a good link high up on, on Google. And if not, obviously on Twitter, I, I have it lovingly put in my profile. Anyway, just get in touch and I can help. Excellent. And for those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can go to the website mediafocus.org.uk where you can leave your email address and receive a shiny email once a fortnight letting you know when the podcast has gone live. That's it. Thanks for listening. The associate producer was John Greenaway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. This <laughs>